I'm Heart. And I'm Moon. We're here to chat about hog noses and maybe some other reptiles too. This is an educational, inclusive podcast for reptile enthusiasts of all levels, where we get to invite keepers to combine their knowledge and experience with ours while sharing it with you. Good day or night to all of you herpeteers out there and welcome to another Reptilian Rendezvous by your two hoggy hosts, Trinity Hart and... Susie Moon! Hi everybody! And today we're going to embark on a mini reptile expo guide where we share our wisdom and know-how as well as learned tips from our fantastic keepers and breeders. Absolutely. The goal of today's episode is to help you navigate reptile shows safely with grace. And the top two things to throw out for those TLDR types out there who may not get through this entire episode are... Please do not bring your own pets. Let's not spread germs. You don't want them to get sick. Yes, I think it was Confucius who once said cleanliness is next to reptilian godliness or something like that. And it's probably true. And <laughs> at that end, we have a very special treat for you today, dear listeners. Miss Hart and I have a guest speaker today. The one, the only, the Hoggy Lees. <laughs> She's an avid hognose enthusiast and fellow aspiring hognose breeder. Welcome to our humble hog cast, Elise. Yay, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yay. <laughs> Would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners by telling them a little bit about yourself and who you are and where they can reach out to you? Yes, plug yourself. Of course. All right. So my name is Elise. I love hog noses. That's why my username is Hoggy Elise. I originally came to a bird hobby, but I've always loved snakes. It took me a while to want to keep them just because I was worried, like, I don't want to have to feed them mice. But once I got over being squeamish, got my first snake two years ago. And now I have 35 snakes. Nice. <laughs> right, you got me beat. <laughs> yeah. So I really jumped in head first. <laughs> That's amazing. So how did you transition from birds over to snakes? Was it just kind of a, a happenstance or were you always into snakes? Yeah, I've always been into snakes. When I was in elementary school, people would be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, a herpetologist. Uh, they would be so confused. They're like, why does this girl want to study herpes at <laughs> six Herpeticulture is not a STD. <laughs> I've always loved reptiles and amphibians and I've always loved snakes. It's just, it was the mice thing. But watching YouTube videos of other snake keepers, I think a big thing was the snake discovery, like feeding videos, and I think Shovel Nose Hogs. I started watching him before I got my own snakes too, so oh, he yeah. had the feeding videos as well. So that kind of desensitized me in a way and made me more comfortable to be like, you know, I can do this, I can keep them. And now here I am taking pictures and recording whenever my snakes are eating. There's a dead mouse hanging out of their mouth. I'm such a long way. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. That's a really great story. And I'm always amazed how many people have turned around on their views on snakes from snake discovery. We're both obsessed with them as well. Yeah. And I just love all these reptile educators out there who are changing people's hearts and minds, who are getting people excited about all these scaly critters. And I'm kind of like you, I've always wanted to work with animals in some way or another. I've 
flitted around from wanting to be one of the sea shepherds. I also wanted to be a marine biologist, but that is a field that is very high in demand and low in supply and takes eight years at least of education. So, but one day I'd love to work with dolphins. And, you know, now I volunteer at a wildlife park. So I get to go and look at the eagles and they have a place called Cheney Discovery Center where they've got all these, they have the world's oldest gopher snake in human care. He's 27 years old. Obviously I love being around animals. I have 27 at home now. <laughs> so 24 of those are reptiles. That's one of the best things about this community is like Susie has said in the past, we're so like-minded. We all come from these backgrounds where we care so much about these animals. We are very passionate about what we do. And a lot of us are very big on the educational aspect, which I love so much. You guys ever watch those kids' discovery channels? Spotlight a different animal each day. Like today we're going to talk about the wolves. Today we're going to talk about bears. Today's going to be tigers. And you learn all about animals every day. Dude, the other day I was doing somebody's eyelashes and she was telling me that her son was obsessed with the wild crats. Do you remember <laughs> the wild crats? I was like, oh my god. I grew up on the wild crats. The crap brothers. I grew up on <laughs> Zabuma food. Oh my god. <laughs> the wild crats started pretty recently. Did no it's way. It's a cartoon. Okay, it's so before they were a cartoon, they were a brother duo show yeah. on TV. They were called the crap brothers. And that's what I grew up on. And the mm -hmm. fact that they now are still doing that and still inspiring kids because she was like, my kid's obsessed. Oh my gosh, she's talking about reptiles and this, that, and the other. And I'm just like, <laughs> the next generation, <laughs> you know, like all excited. I love that. My younger sister was obsessed with Zibu. <laughs> that was like the, um, not the sloth, it was the- um, The lemur. That's what it, it was. was. like Crap Brothers and then the, the Beamer. That was sometimes a puppet, sometimes <laughs> right. a Okay, okay, yeah. So that's so cool. Okay, yeah. We're just... I remember being really confused the first time I watched the Boom of Who because I was like, is it a Muppet or is it not? <laughs> <laughs> they got you, Trin. <laughs> Wait, so really quick. Where can people reach you if they have any further questions regarding this episode, Elise? Oh, yeah. I am on Instagram at Hoggy Elise. So that's at Hoggy Elise, which is H O G G I E L I S E. I think I am also available. I haven't set up my Facebook page yet, but you can easily find me. If you go on the Facebook groups and you search my name, Elise. I'm pretty active awesome. there. And you can always feel free to reach out. You don't have to be following me or we don't have to be mutuals, but I'm always open to answering questions and helping people. Or even if you have bird questions too, I'm available for that. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I might, I don't have birds, but I might ask just out of curiosity. <laughs> yes, Elise is actually a manager at a avian shop. So I've been working with Good parrots resource. for eight years. Yeah. Anything from parakeets to macaws. She's got you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you notice any parallels or crossover between birds and reptiles because they're supposed to be so closely related? Uh, yeah, so they're they're both pretty sensitive animals, like especially in comparison to like mammals. There are certain things that you have to watch out for, like with females, the egg binding. Oh. But they are dissimilar in certain aspects. You know, snake eggs are soft, bird eggs are hard. So a lot of times females, they can rebound from egg binding for snakes. But for birds, it's basically a death sentence. I didn't know so, that. Um, and you know, I think that biggest aspect though is you know birds are extremely social whereas the snakes you know there are some that like coming out but most of the time they're like okay i'll tolerate you looking at me <laughs> right 
<laughs> right. That's the one thing I do appreciate about some of my more social snakes is with some of my hog noses, they really make me feel as though I'm just interrupting their day and they're just waiting to go back to their home. It's like if they were in the middle of watching a TV show and I just pop in like, hey, I want to hang out. And they're like, not really. I'm like, too bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes you feel like the annoying roommate, you know, I'm just trying to clean your poop. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, let's talk about some expo etiquette, shall we? Okay, let's. Absolutely. Who wants to dive in first? Okay, I actually have a question. What would you guys pack with you in preparation to go to an expo? Like, what would you bring in your bag? Hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer? Uh, I go one step further. I bring my own glove. Other than that, there's nothing else that I really take besides, you know, my wallet, my phone, normal stuff, and my freezer bag for when I have to pick up mice. Bringing some cash is probably a good idea, too. There we go. <laughs> a lot of breeders are willing to give you discounts if you bring cash. So not all, but some are willing to work with you. Which makes sense because if they do cash, they don't technically have to report it so they pay less taxes so it's better for them the one thing i would say is whether you're paying in cash or not definitely make sure you're getting contact info for that breeder pick up a card make sure you have some way to reach out to them in case there's any issues later on if you're paying in cash especially you don't really have a paper trail then maybe you need to bring the snake back maybe they missexed it if you don't have something to point to to be like yes i paid this person money it can be a little bit harder to get your money back most breeders are really easy to work with. They're going to be great. We'll give you back your money if something like that were to happen or at least willing to work with you. It's better to just protect yourself that way. I think one thing also in expo prep is researching the breeders beforehand so that you're not buying from someone who is going to ghost you after you buy an animal from them. Mm -hmm. You can look at the breeders online first and kind of see, oh, does this one have good reviews? And you make sure that you're working with someone who is honest and reliable before, you know, forking over that cash at the expo. <laughs> It's true. It's happened to me with my gecko. <laughs> yeah, and we said this in our previous episode too. Do your homework on breeders first. Know who you want to seek out, what kind of animal you want, and what questions you want to have answered before committing to buying an animal from any particular breeder. Having a good list of questions is so important. Things like, what is the animal eating currently? How often? When is the last time they ate? How old is the animal? Do you have their hatch date? Have they been imported? Are they from another breeder? Are they good eaters? Are they socialized? And a side note on that, if they're very young, probably not. And that's fine because you have plenty of time to socialize them. But if they're older, it might be a good thing to ask, especially if it's something that might bite a lot. And having that information before you go in and knowing what breeders to seek out is a really good place to start. Yeah, all good stuff. Especially if you're going to an expo specifically to buy a specific type of snake. Like, let's say you're going in there and you say, I'm trying to find a female lavender. There might be only one in that whole entire expo. And there might be 10 people trying to find a lavender female. So rather than just meandering, if you know specific breeders that you trust, that you can seek out and look for them so that you could kind of beeline there and then purchase your snake and then walk around and take a look at all the other shops and whatnot, you know, then you could do that and you could secure your female because oftentimes, 
times. The issue I have with purchasing snakes at expos is by the time I get there, all the females have, have been gone by the first hours. Show up early. If you can get a VIP pass to get in even earlier. If there's something very particular you're looking for, that's a good idea. I think there's definitely a strategy of picking when to go. So if you're not looking for anything particular, it doesn't really matter when you go. Maybe even going on the second day of the expo or close in the afternoon, you'll be able to find deals on things that you maybe weren't sure you needed. But if you're looking for something specific, definitely get there early on the first day. Because like Susie said, what you want probably already got taken. Yeah. And I know we suggested bringing cash earlier, but you actually do have to have your debit card on you as well. Because parking is paid by debit debit card only. I actually ran into this issue where I lost my debit card the week before the expo and I showed up without a debit card and I had to ask the car behind me, hi, will you pay for my ticket and I'll give you cash? <laughs> yeah. So just so you know, you have to have a debit card. They don't take Apple Pay and cash. Parking is anywhere between $15 and $20 alone per car. And also pack a lunch if you don't want to spend 15 bucks per meal. So the supplies are cheap. Definitely pick up on the supplies, the enclosures, but food and stuff like that that expensive. Yeah, you'll get really good deals on exoterras and reptizoo tanks and things like that. The, the cost of getting in and out and parking will vary depending on where you live and what expo you're going to. There's so many different kinds. I've gone to some where the parking doesn't cost anything <laughs> just because of where I live. But expect to pay probably around that much depending on wherever you're going. And I wanted to point out also, yes, you want to go in early and try and get the particular animal that you are seeking. But to that end, don't ignore red flags. There will always be another ball python or bearded dragon or skink or even hognose snake eventually. You do not have to get something because you're there. This isn't a used car lot. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't be pressured into buying something as though it's your one and only chance. You better get that hot rod right now. The reptile community is alive and kicking. And as Susie said before, you never have to settle. When in doubt, say thank you and move on. I definitely had to say no to some breeders. It's polite to continue conversation. You never want to go up to a table and have the breeder talk to you and be like, hey, what's up? And you just don't look at them and you walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Social norms. <laughs> Um, but sometimes it'll go negative in the other direction where I'm having a conversation with them and then they start talking about like, hey, so like, like, why the heck do you crypto test? Why are you wearing gloves? Or, hey, hold this snake and I can look at the snake and it has mites and like, I'm not putting it in my hand. So you also want to set boundaries. You want to talk to them, but set your boundaries and don't just go along with something because you feel pressured in that situation. I agree. And I used to go to expos and just use hand sanitizer and like hold snakes and stuff until I learned hand sanitizer doesn't kill crypto. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so in essence, it's doing nothing. Because the main, you know, disease that we're wary about is, at least in the hognose community, is crypto, so yeah. yeah. There are other things that hand sanitizer will kill. Yes. yes. Don't hold a snake unless you're planning on taking that snake home. I do agree with that. And that, that's a lesson that I learned the hard way. Well, I guess not really the hard way, but you know, I learned after the fact because uh, I had been talking about it with Sue last time, how I actually got introduced to my first hog nose. And it was at a table where someone was just like, hey, wanna hold the snake? I didn't know any better. I didn't know that that wasn't really a good idea. <laughs> they did have me use hand sanitizer before and after, but you know, as you said, that doesn't actually kill crypto. The only thing that kills crypto is very strong amounts of hydrogen peroxide for long periods of time and really, really high temperatures, like deep steaming and things like that. So it's really hard to kill. Hand sanitizer won't kill that. It will kill other things. There are other things that can be transmitted, but crypto is one of the most 
communicable and deadly. So it's one of those things you really want to be paying attention to. And that's sort of the, I guess, the cardinal rule of any exotic show is besides leaving your own pet at home, and the reasons are manifold, but also making sure that you are not introducing potential pathogens to your snakes or to other snakes or bringing back pathogens to your own collections, whether it's crypto or something else. Pathogens we can talk about in later episodes, but also mites. Yeah. Yeah, be diligent about hygiene. On hygiene, Elise, will you teach us what you do after you come home from your expo? I unfortunately have had two close falls with cryptosporidium. I always test any snake that I bring into my house, and there have been a couple of times where the first test that I do for a snake, and we had it for like a couple of weeks, it comes back positive. So I have been super diligent when it comes to that kind of stuff, so you won't catch me holding any animal usually, unless I am 90% sure I'm going to buy it. I wear gloves whenever handling animals at the expos. When I get home, I take off the clothes that I was wearing, um, put them in the laundry, the high heat setting. I have certain shoes that I only wear to expos. Some people are even put on shoe covers when they go to an expo and then throw those shoe covers away. Yeah. Get home, wash my hands, very hot water, and take a shower. Because the high heat can also help kill crypto, but also I don't go home and handle my animals the same day at the expo either. That's smart. So would you say it's a good idea to maybe stop by a drugstore before you go to an expo to get gloves, sanitizer, maybe those shoe covers if they sell them, that kind of a thing? Yeah. Get like a little expo kit? <laughs> For sure. I have so many boxes of gloves at home. I bring a handful with me. Yeah, sanitizer is better than not doing anything at all. Bacterial infections you can spread between different snakes that you hold. So definitely keep some hand sanitizer with you. I, I try not to hold a bunch of different animals because you know, you hold one animal and that could be perfectly healthy but if it had something and you hold another snake at someone else's booth then you're spreading things around because not a lot of people test their animals so there's no 100% way to know the ratio of people in this community that have crypto in their collections if they're never testing for it and if they have a snake that passes away they just talk it up to something else and they don't bother investigating doing an autopsy or whatever it's a good point I had the most wonderful conversation with the breeder with a table full of hognose babies. They said they had three different breeders working all together. So that's three different lines of potential exposure. And we had a conversation for like a good 30 minutes. And when I said, when it finally came up in conversation, I said, so what lab do you use to test for crypto? They said, we don't test for crypto. (laughs) <laughs> they had a table full of babies, meaning they had to have been raising and breeding for at least three years to raise a female to breed in size. And then they had babies and then they're selling babies and this wasn't their first season. So it was like, they've been having hognos for over five years and not ever tested any of their hognoses ever. Some some breeders don't test and they just have very, very strict quarantine. One method you can use to keep your collection safe is permanent quarantine. No matter how long you've had the snake, who you got the snake from, you always wear gloves wearing that snake and you don't share supplies with any of the other snakes. Except if you produce babies on your own, you know for certain that they don't carry cryptosporidium. You don't have to go as extreme and you can share supplies between those babies. But any other snake that you bring in are very careful. You keep them separate. Don't share anything. Then even if they do have cryptosporidium, if you're very safe about it, you can avoid spreading them. It's very difficult. Yeah, when you're self-producing, it makes sense that you wouldn't be as worried about it because you're making those snakes, you're not bringing in potential outside pathogens. But if you're buying snakes from other places and putting those right into your collection or not doing a quarantine period and not doing testing, you really are risking your entire collection of snakes. 
if a mom has crypto and has eggs, all those eggs are contaminated and it's getting exposed to all of the fluids and that's where the crypto is transmittable. And then the baby could contaminate and then you're sending that baby off to another breeder. Yeah, the babies, they don't get the crypto genetically, but the crypto is on the eggs and when they come out, they get contaminated. We could have a whole, I could have a whole episode discussed. And we will actually. We might have to bring you back <laughs> for a crypto episode. I'm very vocal about advocacy of like, you need to be watching out for this. And I'm so glad that but when I just had my first snake, I was asking the breeder, what, what should I do? Is there any testing protocol? Because at the bird store that I work at, we disease test all the birds that we bring in. Started testing for cryptosporidium with my first snake, even though I didn't have anything else at home. And I'm so glad that I did that because I think it was the sixth ever snake that I brought home was one of the ones that tested positive for crypto. Wow. I'm really glad that we're talking about it and more people are talking about it because it is a scary thing if you had a very easily spreadable disease that is incurable and will be lethal every single time because that's literally what it is. If you imagine that among people, it's terrifying. Now imagine that happening to your snakes and this is why you want to be so careful. Right, like all Python community, nidovirus. How many of them test for nidovirus? Do you know about nidovirus? This stuff is not talked about enough. Yeah, I'm gonna stop yelling now. Get it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's called preventative measures. <laughs> yeah, as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. And as a pet nutritionist, I I live and breathe that mantra. <laughs> you know, you the whole idea is you want to prevent your animal from getting sick in the first place, not try to deal with the aftermath of them getting sick and something like crypto there's no treatment for it that snake will eventually get sick enough to where you may have to put it down it's not a pleasant experience for anybody involved and it's something we want to try and prevent you guys from having to deal with and have that heartbreak from and that's why we're talking about it so much but i will say if we want to kind of move on to the next thing, I think this is a good part to segue into why we talk about not bringing your own pet besides introducing potential pathogens, germs, mites, things like that to your own collection or bringing that to the expo. You also risk your pet getting injured, getting stressed out, getting handled incorrectly or against their or your will by maybe some excited child comes up and pulls on your snake's tail or something like that or etiquetteless adults. It could happen. You know, I'd argue most people who go to reptile shows do know better, but not everybody does. And not to mention the potential stress to both their mental and physical health, especially if you're out of out for hours at this expo. You have to consider the temperature of not only the building you'll be in, but also your own body. Our bodies are around 96 to 98 degrees. And if your pet doesn't have someplace to escape to and cool off and hide with some peace and quiet, you put their their health in jeopardy. Absolutely. I've, I've heard horror stories, someone bringing their pet to an expo and someone just picks it up off of their shoulder and just starts handling it, which is crazy to me. I mean, for one, I don't agree with bringing your pet to the expo in the first place, but it's crazy to me that people just handle other people's animals so freely and so incorrectly. Well, they do it to pet bellies, so, you know. Ugh. I would <laughs> be gonna... like Neo in the Matrix and suddenly I know Kung Fu and I would just... <laughs> Do not touch my snake. <laughs> I'd go John Wick on him. <laughs> yeah, you don't ever imagine these things will happen to you, but it happens to people and we are people and it just, you never know. So keep your pet at home, keep them safe. And also don't take your new pets that you just bought out and hold them for hours while continuing to walk around the expo. Yeah, once you get your pet, it's time to go home. Sometimes vendors will keep them at their table until you're ready to leave. You can always ask if there's other things you need to get, especially if you got something that maybe you weren't planning to get. It's always good to 
set a budget, try your best to stick to it, although most of us don't, and have supplies ready before you buy that animal. But if you end up seeing something that you just have to have and you know you can commit to it, space and time and everything, but you don't have stuff set up at home yet, you can ask them, hey, do you have any temporary setups? Or maybe they can ship them to you, or maybe you can pick them up at a later date. Or at the very least, there's usually kits and enclosures and substrates and hides and basically everything you need for sale at a reptile expo. So you can keep them at the table until you acquire everything you need. This shouldn't be the way you do it all the time, but you can make it work if you're prepared to drop several hundred dollars and a whole day to prepping space for them as soon as you get home. Yes, and if you've already done the research to know what you should appropriately buy for said species. Absolutely. I think one thing to be said is if you're new to an animal, ask the breeder for advice. If they're a reputable breeder, they should care about the health of the animals that they are selling and putting out into the world. So they should be able to help you with what kind of enclosure do you need? What's the humidity and temperature requirements? What should they be eating? There are some breeders at expos that they just want to take your money and send you off. If I get that kind of vibe, I don't want to buy from that person. Definitely, if you are buying an animal that you weren't expecting, ask for help before you go home. <laughs> and ask multiple breeders for oh, help. Yes. Don't take one breeder's word at the end all be all because I've made that mistake and gotten the wrong advice and given improper husbandry to my corn snake years and years and years ago. Continue to do research, continue to study because science, especially in the reptile community, is continually ever evolving and changing and we're learning so much every single year. Ask and keep asking. Don't ever stop asking. What we know about reptile care is constantly changing and the information that one person has may be outdated or different from the information that somebody else has. Never in any situation get all of your information from one source. Always cross-reference. <laughs> it's really good too to combine sort of a whole bunch of information from a whole bunch of different sources and then kind of put that to use in your own way. Like a little bit from this person and a little bit from that person. I like how this person does it. This way worked better for me than this way. Get all that information and then come up with your own way and then share that with the world. But make sure you have at least a year, two years, three years experience making sure that is a truly working for you before you do share that. But that's how we learn things is we take in animals, we get lots of experience with them, we find out what works and what doesn't work, we get information and then we share that and we put that back out into the world because sure there's a thousand different YouTube videos on how to take care of leopard geckos or care guides on ball pythons but one of those is going to speak to somebody in a way it doesn't speak to other people. There's always your unique spin on it. And that's part of why we're doing this is because we have our own unique spin on how we do these things. And something we say here might resonate with somebody better than the exact same information shared in a YouTube video. Who knows? <laughs> that's why we do this. I definitely agree with that. You know how like different stuff works for different people because oh, yeah. we live different places too. What works in Minnesota is not going to work here in Kelly. You know, there are multiple right ways to do things. That's one thing that surprised me when I was coming into reptile care. I feel like I know birds inside out. I I know what's right and what's wrong. But with reptiles, it's like you'll get a lot of conflicting information or just different techniques that work for different people. There are definitely wrong ways. Like don't put your hog nose in 100% sand, maybe. <laughs> but, <laughs> there are some hard stops, yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Another great point to that is, yes, you should ask lots of questions. However, you do also want to respect the vendor's time and space. I think it was Oscar Wilde who once said, a gentleman is one who never inconveniences another without due cause. <laughs> Let us be courteous in our reptilian inquiries. We can all be gentlemen and avoid engaging reptile vendors in lengthy interrogations about their animals, especially if we actually have no intention of buying one. <laughs> when you stay at a table for a long time asking questions, you're 
potentially taking up a spot from someone who would actually buy an animal. You know, one way we can be empathetic and respectful to the folks selling these reptiles in these shows is to be honest with ourselves about whether we're likely to actually acquire a snake or a gecko or a turtle or whatever from this person. And if we're not, consider moving along a little bit faster so that someone else can. That's a really good point. I can't explain how many times I really am interested, like, oh, maybe they have something that I want, but I can't even access the table because like, there are people who are just like looky-loos, stuff like that. And I just unfortunately have to walk past because everyone's hustling and bustling and I don't want to be standing there. We'll try to come back later if I can. So definitely respect the breeder's time and customer's time. They are small businesses at the end of the day. We're all just trying to make it and do our version of our best. Definitely respecting each other goes a long way. Yeah, moral of the story, don't prevent Elise from getting her snake. <laughs> <laughs> you looky lose you. <laughs> Another point I'd like to bring up is before you go to brush up on how to recognize issues, which is something we touched on on our previous episode, doing those physical exams that we mentioned, or having the vendor hold the animal up for you so that you can examine them without touching, learn how to identify neurological issues like wobbling and stargazing and how to spot parasites like mites. How to tell if the animal looks pale, underweight, overweight, has lumps where there shouldn't be lumps, has scale rot or missing body parts or looks severely dehydrated. These are all clues to an animal's overall well-being as well as the quality of care and husbandry that's being provided by the breeder. So know how to identify those red flags so that you can avoid animals that are going to be sick and bring you heartbreak. When you're examining an animal that you potentially want to purchase, What's the thing that would make you say, hmm, I don't know, especially as a breeder, maybe I don't want to invest in this guy or girl. And what's the thing that makes you say, wow, I'm going to go for it. I think one thing is definitely everything that you said, plus just looking at the structure of their bodies. That's another topic that we could definitely delve into more, but especially for hog noses, you want to watch for buggy eyes or stubby tails and short faces short bodies, also if the animal is like severely overweight, just things like that. It's clues to say that this animal might not live that long. So those signs show that maybe the breeder didn't really have much care to being like, oh, who to care? This animal might be inbred. And especially for us who are planning on probably being that animal down the line is you don't want to be passing that out down to your future generation's babies. I agree. I think especially when people are beginning to get into hognose, they don't necessarily get too detailed into the body structure and head structure. And I think that's something that shouldn't be overlooked, especially if you are planning to breed in the future. I think too many breeders overlook the big eye and bug eye. This is a sign of inbreeding. So if you see a snake that has bug eye or big eye, I'm not saying it's 100% been inbred. What I'm saying is it is a sign of inbreeding. Thus, why would you want to selectively choose a snake that has signs of inbreeding to create the future generations of hognoses? You would want to pick ones that should be the breed standard, right? We don't take a dog, we don't take a German Shepherd that has big floppy ears and decide to breed it. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, there's actually a really good comparison for hog noses with brachycephalic breeds. Yeah. And that's what Elise was talking about with looking at the structure of the face and how much space there is actually to breathe. I've referred to hog noses as the pugs of the snake world before, but you wouldn't want to take something like a pug that has a very short snout and is already having respiratory problems and then breed it to another pug that also has a really short snout because then you're creating a generation of babies that are going to have a hard time breathing their entire lives with extremely short snouts. You would want it in Instead, take the best representative of a pug that you could possibly find. I'm not meaning to pick on pugs, but they do have problems. Something that has a longer snout, that has cleaner eyes, that has less skin issues. You want to make a batch of babies based on an ambassador of the breed, an animal that is as healthy as it could possibly be, because those traits are going to be passed down. And you want to make sure that they have the best chance at life, that they're going to be comfortable, that they look good, that they're healthy. So same thing with a hog nose. You wouldn't want to get something that has a really short face and big eyes, because then you're going to create animals like those tiny teacup chihuahuas who are born with their eyes are so big that they pop out of their skulls and it's really horrific and you don't want to do the same thing with snakes and i wanted to ask you elise where where would you suggest to our listeners and to us to get resources on what good hognose anatomy would be books or articles people you can talk to etc I get most of my information from breeders with a lot of experience. So I'll go to their page and I'll kind of see what kind of animals they have, what they look like, looking at maybe their morph market and kind of studying what their animal looks like and just comparing what does this person's animal look like versus this like super cheap one. I know JMG Reptiles is a very strong advocate for strong head structure and the length of the rostral scale and the ratio of size between the eyes and the rest of head. Unfortunately, there's not that many books that talk about it. And when you are looking at basic prognosis information, you're not going to get that kind of information. Hopefully, sometimes somebody comes up with some resource that is a handy dandy guide. Our hobby is growing. It's still pretty young. So there's still a lot of resources that need to be made. Absolutely. I think Miss Moon over here wants to make her own hognose book. Yay, I do. <laughs> and actually, I do want to include good points of what would make good hex structure, what would be, and how I actually saw that Elise had art that she was working on that has body structure for underweight, perfectly weight, and overweight hogs. Oh, the body condition score chart? Yeah, so she was, I saw that she was creating her own version of the body score chart. I think we could also do the same for body and head structure, right? And uh, I know that some breeders literally will have a scoring chart like one to 10, and they rate each hog that they have on a scale of one to 10 on head structure and body structure. So I think if we come up with this type of system and I'm not saying, oh, don't buy any hogs that don't have this rating structure. But I think if we start creating our own industry standard, then it would not only help for beginners to learn what to look for, but it would help us to be able to further prognose to make that functionality over cosmetic become a priority and we could really breed superior hogs, try to eliminate the issues like neurological issues in PPA and big eye and albino and all of that. And eventually, I mean, I think we can do it. We, we have the resources, we have the people that have the will, the heart, the passion. And yeah, I, we have nowhere to go but up from here, literally in this community. Well said. We want to perpetuate healthy hogs. 
And one way to do that is by being very choosy about what hogs we breed. Some of the stuff is not going to apply if you're just going to get one little hog nose snake. It's going to be a pet its whole life. And breeding definitely is not for everybody. And we're not sitting here trying to encourage anyone to breed. Something we say might help them. It might be information they haven't come across before. It's also good for us to keep talking about it anyway. You know, you don't have to buy a hog that looks perfect if you're never going to breed it. But if you think you might, these are the kinds of things you're going to want to be thinking about is how can I make sure that I am adding to the hog nose genetic circle in order to make sure that we have healthy snakes that are long-lived are going to produce more healthy snakes. We've seen a lot of breeders that will label animals with less than desirable traits as pet only. So, you know, if a snake has like severe bug eyes, that doesn't mean that it can't be a good pet, but it shouldn't be passing down its genes. Yeah, I definitely respect those breeders. I've come across a few breeders who were actually really picky about which snakes they sell as breeder ready, a breeder type snakes. And I was actually surprised at what some breeders were listing as pet only. And I, after noticing what they would point out, I would agree with them. But definitely that makes an impression in my mind of which breeders to work with because of their transparency and their commitment to sell breeder quality snakes at breeder quality prices. Yeah, looking at the care involved and the thought put into their animals. This is a, another reason why I prefer to get my snakes from breeders who specialize in a species because those people are very passionate about that particular animal and they're going to know a lot more about it because they work solely with that animal or mostly only with that animal. Like Elise mentioned earlier, breeders that you can talk to and get information from who might have been doing this for decades and they're going to have so much good information that is essentially tribal knowledge. It's not going to be written in books anywhere and until we have a lot more of that information available, we want to continue talking about things like this and getting information from each other. And so far I've found, you know, even the, the busiest, biggest of breeders are still amenable to questions and do everything that they can to help. And that's kind of what inspired us to do this podcast and to try and get that information out there as well. And also just to have fun because we like talking to each other. Yay! What was the, what was the topic again? We're uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other little tidbits? Any, anything else we can think about that we'd like to throw out? Things like maybe you should do while you're at an expo? What do you encourage people to do? I would say write out a shopping list. Oh yeah. Because I always, if I don't, I'll forget, oh my gosh, I needed to buy Aspen or oh my gosh, I forgot this size mouse or something like that. So because expos are also an excellent place to buy your feed. A lot of reputable feed stores will actually come with giant freezers and, you know, sell them at the expos. But yeah, if I don't do a grocery list, I'll buy all kinds of things I don't need. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, you could like walk around your house and be like, oh, I need more branches. I could use a few more hides. I'd like to get a bigger enclosure for this animal. And I want to make sure I get something that has these heads. Write it all down and then try to get as many of those things as you can. Something else I would say is keep the prices in mind. So I try not to just buy anything on the first pass of my expo. So I always do multiple walkthroughs. Any kind of supplies that I'm needing, I'll kind of see it at one booth and be like, okay, this person has it for this price. And then I'll walk past and I'll see another person that maybe has it for cheaper or more expensive. So sometimes I'll even write in my phone like a notes app. We're at which table and I remember which ones to go back to before I leave. 
Ooh. Yep. She'd be taking notes, girl after my own heart. <laughs> uh, no, for reals, I do notice that. Literally, especially with little things like bags of Pangea or Dubias, supplies like that. I mean, they'll vary just a couple bucks, but a couple bucks, a couple bucks here, a couple bucks there. Like nowadays, it's hard to make a couple bucks. Earn it. Keep it in your pocket. Don't give it to them. <laughs> Makes a difference. <laughs> yeah, for reals. I also say, um, when I go to Expos to buy feeders, it depends on the company, of course. When I am trying to order feeders, instead of getting them shipped to me, you know, like Susie said, a lot of those big names, sometimes they have booths at the expo. And what I'll do is I'll place an order ahead of time. Normally those big box stores, they will charge a little bit more in person. So you can go ahead and get those online prices, but without having to pay for the shipping, you can place your order ahead of time and say, oh, I'm going to pick it up here. They actually charge a little bit more per feeder at the expo. So Elise actually taught me this. If you email them or call them beforehand and place an order, you still get the online price. You don't have to pay for shipping and you don't have to pay for expo prices and you still get to pick it up at the expo. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are so smart. This is not just a hat rack, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Roll credits. <laughs> the last thing that I had, and this is absolutely not a requirement, but something I did want to throw out, maybe plan to donate to US ARC or sign up for a membership if you haven't already. You could even get a free membership if you do like a bronze. It's only $30 a year. They are the, I think it's the United States Association of Reptile Keepers, and they are the amazing organization of people making things like reptile shows, conservation and educational programs, be in places so that we can all continue to keep, breed, look at, and learn about reptiles. They go to bat for our rights every single day, and they often have some sort of representative like presence at almost every reptile show, so go pay them a visit and help keep this community thriving with your support. And it's not just reptiles either, because this is sort of like a cascade effect. If all of our rights for keeping and having educational programs for reptiles goes away, you know what comes next is aquaculture and amphibians and then other exotics. These are all tied together. So it's not just going to be our pets. It could be your non-reptile pets as well that are going to come next. And this is, this is not merely speculation. We've already seen this happen. Something to keep in mind is by protecting our rights to have the animals that we have and to maintain the educational programs that we have for them, you're also protecting your rights in the future. U.S. ARC is usually present in some sense at any expo you go to. And what's fun actually as a fundraiser, many shows will have an auction at the end of the day. All proceeds go to U.S. ARC, various readers or sellers, or even just, I've seen people like kids like donate their art or donate supplies or even donate animals to the auction. All of those funds go straight to supporting a very, very important organization. And sometimes it depends on which expo you go to and what's up for auction but you can sometimes get some really uh, high-end animals for cheap or even just like any kind of animal like, there's perks to paying more so that more funds go to this art or you can just choose to donate to them directly i've seen pieces of art sell for like five grand oh wow because want to donate to us art and if anywhere in the world someone will appreciate your reptile art it will be at a us art auction so yeah. want to talk about catering to your audience and while also getting to watch a piece of your artwork get sold for a big amount of money and also you're helping every single reptile keeper in the united states by keeping our rights to keep reptiles so 
win, 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 win. <laughs> That's actually a really cool idea for any of you artists out there listening is maybe you could make some really cool reptile art and then donate that to a sark while you're there. Some people would pay buku bucks for that and that would really go to a really good cause. And if you think your state's not affected by this, it is, I promise you. Oh yeah. If you think, oh, I'm not in Florida or I'm not in, you know, Colorado or I don't have to deal with these like strict laws, I'm not in New York or whatnot, any of one of our states could be next. So it affects all of us, I promise you. And it's, again, like how she said, it's not just reptiles. There's some countries that are currently passing no exotic animals at all, as in every single, doesn't matter if it's furry, doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't matter, chinchilla, you know, hedgehogs. Ferrets, <laughs> ferrets is a big one. Hedgehogs and ferrets is what I was trying to say. But yes, hedgehogs are illegal <laughs> now and Stop making me laugh. Serious. <laughs> so this is something that we have to protect our rights. Yeah. You gotta fight for your right to fight. <laughs> I was trying to think of like a reptile version of that, and I'm not clever enough to come up with one quickly. You gotta fight for your right to hogs. <laughs> the hog nose. <laughs> there you go. For your right to hog nose. Before we do sign off, did either of you have any any last things you wanted to mention about expo etiquette? We covered everything that I have to think of for expos, plus a bunch of other topics. <laughs> well, we'd love to have you back on again sometime, and we really appreciate you coming on our little podcast. It was great having you here, and you had some really great information. I think a lot of people are going to be excited to hear from you, and we'll seek you out. Thank you so much for having me. I, this was really fun and I'm just really glad to be a part of this, being able to share some knowledge and pass along some great information. And I really look forward to being here again. There's a lot of topics that I'm very passionate about, but I would love to share that conversation with you. Absolutely. That's what we love to hear. Dropping some knowledge, y'all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elise. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you guys. And once more, I'm Trinity Hart, and I'm here to remind you that the joy of discovery is an adventure that never ends. I'm Susie Moon, and I'm excited to discover the mysteries of Hognose together with you. Yay! <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you guys. You're awesome. like to remind our wonderful listeners that we're here to spark curiosity and to bring you engaging and educational content. But everything we say on this podcast is based on our personal opinions and experiences. We want to encourage you to dive deeper, explore multiple perspectives, and always conduct your own research as well. Thank you for tuning in and let curiosity be your guide. Hognoses, Hognoses for, for life! life. <laughs> <laughs>